The MMM Podcast, in partnership with Real Chemistry, presents Going Beyond AI Strategy, Real Chemistry's playbook for improving healthcare commercialization. Hello. My name is Larry Dobrow. I am the editor-in-chief of MMM, and I am thrilled that I drew the long straw today, and I get to do this podcast with some of our good friends from Real Chemistry. We're going to be talking a little bit about going beyond AI strategy and Real Chemistry's playbook for improving healthcare commercialization. And to discuss this, we have Real Chemistry's CEO, Shankar Narayanan, and CTO, Sim Simeonov. Guys, thanks so much for joining me here today. Thank you, Larry. Great to be here. So, you know, let's start at the kind of the most basic place, I guess. Obviously, AI is everywhere right now. People are writing about it. People are playing around with our chat GPT. It's taken over so much over the last three to six months. So um, given that there is so much out there, why now for Real Chemistry to come out with this series? Why, why is now the right time for Real Chemistry, who obviously has plenty of experts in this field, um, start writing about it, start uh, putting its uh, viewpoint out there in the public realm? Yeah, as you said, Larry, the time is now because I think there's a lot of strategy consultants out there. And I can say this having been one myself in a previous life. But I think, you know, there's, there's just in the last five, six months, you know, as you mentioned, since ChatGPT kind of came on the scene, you know, there have been so many consultants, right? McKinsey, BCG, Bain, you name it, that are all out there giving a, a high-level strategic perspective of what's the potential for generative AI, the economic impact, and so on and so forth. And all of that is valuable and useful state-setting perspective. But I think when we talk to our clients, you know, they want a practitioner's perspective, right? And so that's what we are trying to bring here is a very much a practitioner's perspective of how do you pull all of this together, right? AI can be a tremendous connectivity issue across a number of initiatives, but pulling it through, doing it well, and doing it um, at scale is not easy. And so we think we can really help our clients, you know, bring that practitioner's perspective and really think about how they can really apply AI, in this case, specifically throughout the commercialization lifecycle and the journey of a patient or an HCP across, you know, all the phases of commercialization. In honor of the Women's World Soccer Cup, let me give you a soccer analogy. You know, soccer is the world's largest sport. And so all around the world, there's lots of people whose job title is soccer player. And obviously, their skills vary, right? There's very few Messi's and Sophia Smith's. Um, but if you look at the performance of soccer teams, they actually vary a lot more than individual performance of soccer players. And the reason is this top talent clusters. The best want to work with the best. And they require all the resources and budgets, you know, um, uh, commensurate with that talent. And so the analogy in data science is that data science has become really easy to do over the past few years. But, you know, there's a difference between somebody with a data scientist title and somebody who's a world-class AI practitioner. And those people historically work at product companies. They don't work at agencies and they don't work at service businesses. That has been and will continue to be because, again, the best the best want to work with the best. And so Real Chemistry evolved as this very unique beast. I don't even know whether there are agencies like us. It's an agency that owns world-leading sort of big data and AI companies, you know, swoops a market lead in audience targeting. Last TFS company ranked IPM.ai as the number two data science company and conversation health which is another 
company we acquired, uh, is by far the company with the deepest experience in uh, AI conversations in the health space that are regulatory compliant. And so this is, this is why we think we have a perspective. We're not just an agency that works with a bunch of clients that happens to have hired some data scientists. We're an agency that works with a lot of clients that has some of the top AI talent in the healthcare space. So that's obviously a powerful reason for getting that voice out into the world. Um, so summarize the series for us. Tell me a little bit about how it got started, um, maybe even some of the kind of the false avenues that you went down on the way and how it came out to where it is now. Yeah, so Sim and I started talking about this, um, I want to say maybe two, three months ago, or even earlier, actually, right? And Because uh, right, right around the time that I think the chat GPT work came out, you know, we'd been doing, we had been working in AI in healthcare for close to a decade by then, Larry, as you may know. And so we, we took a step back and saying, look, this, this is great because, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years. And it looks like the world is finally ready to sort of meet us where we've been, right, in a sense. And so we did see this as an opportunity for us to, um, you know, take the stage in a way very different than, than what we've seen before. And so that's what we started talking. And then, and then, like I mentioned earlier, you know, all of these different perspectives started to come out from the big strategy houses on what Gen AI can do and so on and so forth. And we were in parallel doing a lot of the trials and experimentation ourselves on, you know, how do we use um, different forms of Gen AI, for example, for different facets of our business. And so we kind of started putting all of these things together and saying, you know, I think it will be valuable for our clients to have a, a clear playbook on what is the role that AI can play across every facet of the commercialization life cycle. Say that five times fast. Um, and so that's, that's how it all started to come together. Right. And, and we, cause we'd been doing, we'd been doing all of those elements, you know, in different ways, but I think we saw this as an opportunity to really tell the story in an integrated way. And so we started to, so what we, what we put together in the series, Larry is, is really a three part series, right? So the first one really talks about what are the different aspects in commercialization and what's the role that AI plays in that. And so the way we think about it, we think about a five-step journey, right? Where you start with listening and not just listening for like data signals, but listening to synthesize and draw out unique perspectives on healthcare audiences. We then take that and we translate that into identification actions that we can take, either identifying the, the right patients or the right providers or the right caregivers. We then talk about personalized, right? Which is now once you know who you, you, who you want to address, you can then develop very personal, targeted, tailored communications for that specific individual or, or, or patient population, if you will. And then you can activate them online. And then last but not least, you can engage them, right? Have real two-way conversations. Uh, because for, for the longest time, a lot of healthcare communications have been sort of one-to-many. And I think now with conversational agents and, and, and the like, you can actually have real one-to-one -one conversations, but at a, at a, at a sort of large scale. So the first part of the series really talks about breaking down those five steps in the cycle and what role can AI play in each of those five aspects of the cycle and how do we help partner with our clients doing that? We then talk about, okay, this is great. That's the kind of the what, if you will. But to make this really work and to ground this in an organization, we have this notion about democratizing AI, right? So you have to give the power to the masses because unlike other 
previous, you know, waves of change, like this is not one where you can sort of force change top down because you have to give people the ability to play in this playground, get familiar with these tools and techniques and learn how to do it. Right. So there's a, there's a whole process of how do you spread this across the organization? How do you give people the right tools? How do you get them to really understand how to use these things? And then the, and the last piece then talks about, you know, organizationally, how do you stitch all of this together? Because, one of the issues that a lot of our, our big pharma clients tend to face is, you know, they have these multiple silos. And so you don't want to create further AI-generated silos. And so how do you bring this all together? How do you create that integrative layer where you can abstract and get the right insights, you know, when it's needed, where it's needed? So those are the three things that we talk about, right? Like the what, you know, how do you orchestrate this within the organization and how do you integrate across the organization? Um, to that end, are there some examples of, um, you could share about when you're actually using this framework, you know, kind of showing this in action? We are seeing some that are leaders and thinking thinking much more holistically and aligning to this to this framework, which is exciting. Um, in the various areas, you know, around identification, sort of focusing your efforts where they're most effective. You know, we have examples of IPM, uh, in some cases, increasing new patient starts by, you know, more than 45 percent you know, significant increase for a client in very complex therapeutic areas where patients are difficult to find and where therapy is expensive. So just a huge, huge return on investment. Swoop, which I mentioned, is in the audience targeting space. You know, again, anybody can do audience targeting. You want to target men for prostate cancer, target men over 50. Billions of dollars have been spent this way. Uh, very inefficient. I'll give you just one example. Uh, pharma is one of the largest linear TV spenders. Always has been. Targeting on pure demographic with absolutely no data. So it's whoop, we pioneered data-driven linear TV targeting where you can actually use healthcare data in a privacy-safe way to optimize your TV buys. And um, that was a very complicated thing to pull off. It took us years to stitch all the pieces together. Uh, but now we're enabling clients to do amazing things and drive huge efficiencies in their existing spend. When it comes to digital, you know, it's not easy to get 10x ROI, but a number of our clients are getting ROIs above 10x um, with, with the type of targeting that we have. And on the conversation side, again, generative AI is great, but you can't plug it in to have a conversation with a patient or an HCP because it occasionally hallucinates and you don't want to cause harm and you don't want to break FDA regulations. And at the same time, farmers under pressure, a number of large companies are making reductions in their sales force. And so who is going to make the connection to the HCP? Who's going to educate the doctor or kind of provide them information at a point in time? I think conversational life has huge opportunities in this space. And some leading clients are... Um, adopting it very, very aggressively. We can talk about some of them in part because they consider this um, a significant competitive advantage in their therapeutic areas because they're improving the HCP experience and they believe this is going to lead to uh, you know, a shift in prescribing behavior. 
Sure. I was going to ask you this a little bit later in the conversation, but this seems a natural place for it. Overall, um, based on what you were just saying, where are we? Um, how ready is the industry for some of these things? Um, how ready is real chemistry for it? I think the answer is very ready. <laughs> but um, let's say some of the conversations you have with the organizations that are extremely siloed versus the ones that are less so. How does, uh, how does your approach vary? Um, what have been some of the most successful techniques for doing this? There's a lot of education. Um, the typical uh, client approach to addressing something new outside of silos is to create another silo, but call it an enterprise-wide silo. So they create a digital team, they hire some data scientists, they buy a tool uh, or some platform um, from a third-party vendor or from a health-rated vendor, and off they go looking for ways to help the business. And they absolutely should do that. Um, we are in no way recommending that pharma companies do not invest in their own machine learning and data science capabilities and build out their own teams. But again, there is a, in the broader set of how you build, partner, and buy, you want to be both efficient and effective. So a lot of what we do is try to just explain the pattern of how do you optimize your decision-making and what does it make sense to do on your own versus when do you reach the partner's Versus where do you buy outcomes as opposed to, or, you know, the saying, people don't want a shovel, they want a hole in the ground. Yeah, and I, I would add to that and say, Larry, to your question, um, the, the answer, as you can imagine, varies quite widely based on, I would say a couple of things, right? One is the size of the company that we're dealing with, you know, so big pharma versus specialty pharma versus biotech small and emerging biotech, I think they, they all tend to have slightly different ways to think about this. I think in big pharma, you know, we are starting to see a, a phenomenon where a few trusted partners, you know, pharma starting to work with a few trusted partners. Um, and in some cases, you know, one of them becomes their de facto digital commercial partner, right? And then that partner and we have a few examples of how we're doing this in, in, in big pharma and, and big biotech, where we then start to become that fulcrum point to pull all of those commercial actions together from an AI perspective across the enterprise. Um, so, so that's certainly an approach that we've, we've seen some companies take. But then equally, as Sim pointed out, there are, there are other, other clients we work with where you know, we're helping them, for example, maybe with one facet of this five-step journey that I mentioned, but they may have other partners and so and there's and they have an internal team that they're building out, which is a data science team. So they're still evaluating the mix of build versus buy versus partner. And they're, and they're sort of placing multiple experiments and placing multiple bets. And I think as you get into more of the the emerging biotech, right? The biotech that has a single product that they want to commercialize, you know, which is in phase three, there I think the conversations are getting a lot more streamlined where they recognize that the risks to them of commercializing a product are much higher than a big pharma who's done this over and over and over, right? So they want to find a partner who can really help them think through this, uh, you know, from an end-to-end -end perspective. And so, so there, I think this notion of having a single partner that can work with them across all of the five dimensions that I talked about of commercialization, you know, is, is very appealing to them, right? So I think, you know, so, so it's definitely different strokes for different folks, given how, nascent and emerging this market is. And I think there's, there's no one size fits all, honestly, right? And it, it all comes down to how willing is the client to 
build versus buy, like where's their bias on that dimension? And how strong are the voices internally for, you know, standing up uh, an internal data science team or any of that stuff, right? So it's it sort of, those are some of the variables that we see day to day when we are sitting down and talking to clients about this. How about this? Sort of the flip side of that last question. Um, what what are some of the barriers to adoption that we're seeing? Um, what are some of the, I don't want to call them frustrations, but you know, what are some of the things that real chemistry finds itself kind of having to fight through to make this work as well as it can and should work? Yeah. And I'll, I'll, Throw in a couple, and, and Sim will surely have other perspectives to add as well, right? So I think the first, the first thing I would say is internal debate and dialogue around what is the direction we want to take, right? So that is something that, as Sim mentioned earlier, we can educate, we can inform, but clients have to sort of come to that point of view and decision making themselves on what direction do we do they want to take, right? Do they want to work with a single partner and have them be the partner of choice? Do they want to place multiple bets with like multiple partners? Do they want to build it all in-house? So that that whole set of internal dialogues on what direction do we want to take? The, you know, how do we want to build this? Like we find that that often takes time, takes multiple cycles of trial and error in some cases. Uh, so, so that's something that we, we have to be, I guess, patient about and, and work with them on educating and informing them. You know, the regulatory, uh, the role the regulatory plays in our industry is obviously well understood. And that is, I don't want to say it's a barrier, Larry, as much as it's something that we all have to be cognizant about. You know, we cannot, we cannot, like Sim said earlier, you know, have content, you know, um, that's kind of hallucinatory in nature. Uh, You know, you have to also make sure that content personalization meets the MLR hurdle. And that's, and there's a little bit of tension there, right? Because in theory, you know, technology is available today to, to deliver full-on mass personalization of content for patients or HCQs. But then where that hits up against MLR is when you, you, you know, sort of the whole thing slows down because, you know, every piece of content and outside at some level, some client would say, will have to go through that MLR process, right? And I think we're on, on the cusp of new technology that can really take that MLR personalization, customization barrier or hurdle away uh, and make that you know doable at scale, right? So I think when that happens, that will unleash a whole new level of personalization in our, in our industry that we haven't quite seen before. So those are those are a couple of things that I sort of definitely see from 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 my vantage point. But Sim, you should add on as well. Yeah, what you said is absolutely right, and um, one of the challenges that's related to it becomes a little bit further downstream. Uh, again, relates to just not knowing what you don't know. It's natural for uh, companies to begin the data air work around HCPs. Ultimately, it's the main focus. The data is more readily available. There is a standard identifier and MPI number. Uh, there are not much privacy issues and so on and so forth. But they create a certain mindset and a certain momentum that they project then into their desires for things to do on the patient side. The patient world is very different from a privacy and compliance standpoint. There's no federal privacy legislation, and they're unlikely to be at least until 2025. There's a patchwork of state laws, and new ones are coming up every year. Separately, there's ad tech for activation, self-regulatory frameworks that keep evolving. And so a lot of the assumptions and habits that organizations build on working at the HCP level actually become extremely counterproductive when working at the patient level. Fundamentally, if you work with multiple separate vendors, you are likely to have very poor outcomes 
because for privacy reasons, those vendors can share very, very small amounts of data with each other. So while you can have a set of vendors supporting you on the HCP side with appreciably very little loss in efficiency or effectiveness, on the patient side, you really want to look for an integrated solution where all the various pieces of this five-step framework, listen, identify, personalize, activate, engage, um, can happen under the same privacy umbrella. Because for example, Swoop and IPM material chemistry can share information at a much more granular level under a patented federated privacy architecture than if they could if there were two separate vendors. And as a result, you end up with richer data while still maintaining privacy compliance and far, far better performance. And this is something where uh, literally the industry would need to learn because, again, as I said, the habits of how you work on the HCP side, uh, many of them end up being extremely counterproductive when you want to do things at the patient level. Uh, both of you touched on this in your response to that question, but I want to throw this out specifically as well on the cultural piece of it. Um, how do you massage might be the right word. How do you massage the cultural piece of it? Because this is a big change. You know, these companies have been used to doing things one way for a very long time. And now things are accelerating at a you know, pretty rapid and in some people's minds, I'm sure, scary pace. Yeah, I think, um, you know, th th there's two dimensions to that question as we answer that, uh, Larry. So the first is, there's a set of cultural implications for us as a partner to our clients, right? And so maybe you may want to just talk about, you know, RCIS workspace and the guilds and some of those things, because this is a big cultural change for us as well. Like make no mistake. It's a, it's not an easy, you know, three foot uphill putt here, right? There's a lot of work that goes into the internal change as well. So why don't we start there? Because when we, when we get through the hard work, we're also starting to appreciate what it might involve for our clients as well. And I can touch on some of the client dimensions after that. So. Absolutely. I mean, again, our, our goal is to empower our clients when we do the work with the outputs of world-class machine learning and AI. And the way to do this, we need to empower our own service delivery teams, right? Because the product teams, as percentage of our total workforce, are very few people in absolute or relative term. And so for us, this is a multi-year roadmap that we started um, at the time Real Chemistry acquired Swoop and IPM in 2020, which is how I came into the company. Uh, that's involved many millions of dollars of investment. Um, we call it the Real Chemistry Insight System. And essentially, it's a way to uh, democratize access to both generative and non-generative AI and do the kinds of things that uh, would typically take weeks of work and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars um, not for client deliveries, but for educating and empowering the service delivery team with understanding of the client context as a business, of their HCPs, of their patients, so that they can then deliver high quality services, whether it's marketing communications, whether it's creative work, or whether it's, you know, deep, deep data and AI. Um, and again, we'll we'll talk more about it in a future in a future edition of this series. But one thing that is that is worth mentioning is that in any market, 
they're visionaries, they're early adopters, there's mainstream and there's laggards, right? And that's, and that's natural and that's okay. Um, we're having a lot of conversations looking for the visionaries and the early adopters right now. And some of the most exciting client relationships we have are the people who see the potential, don't know how to walk the path. And we're actually co-developing. You know, Shankar mentioned MLR and the tension between MLR and mass personalization. I mean, just take a step back, think about it. You know, everybody will agree with the statement that more personalized content, more personalized experiences uh, will improve outcomes. Now, exactly by how much, how do you measure ROI? It's not easy to figure out. So it's smart to think of creating a portfolio of personalization, right? Don't think of it narrowly, think of it broadly because then you're reducing variance of outcomes, uh, just like you invest in mutual funds as opposed to in individual stocks. It's how you get the return with a lot less risk. Um, but that means a lot of personalization. That means a lot of MLR work. Um, think about it. You know, uh, We have technology that can use AI to figure out uh, the different subpopulations of your patients uh, based on uh, how they think about uh, being on therapy, how they make decisions about life. And it makes sense to personalize content for them. Right? People are not all the same. When they come to your website, they shouldn't just see the same text. The claims about, say, side effects should be the same, but they can be presented in a manner that different people understand them better. Right? Um, some of our most exciting relationships recently are clients who want to co-develop and figure out a path. They want to take advantage of this mass personalization capability. They don't fully understand how to push this significant amount of personalized content through their existing MLR processes and are looking to us for help to essentially um, make this work. And it's exciting because we like being um, on the leading slash bleeding edge with, uh, with clients who really understand the potential uh, that some of these new technologies bring. The only thing I would add, uh, Larry, is I think it comes down to you know, for our pharma clients and for our pharma and biotech clients and CEOs in particular and, and chief commercial officers and people in those C-level roles, it's important to your question of culture for them to identify the leaders in the organization who have a proven history and track record of being innovative, being entrepreneurial, being willing to try new things. Because the reality is, as you well know, Many commercial leaders in, in pharma and biotech tend to have a three to five year life cycle of working on a brand or a disease area, right? And, and the risk averse approach would be to say, look, I'm here for three years. I have to take brand X from like X, Y dollars of sales to Z dollars of sales. There's a proven playbook where I can just, you know, use linear TV and so on. And I'm going to stick to that trodden path. Or you have certain other leaders and one of our clients, you know, I, I won't name that person just for confidentiality reasons, but, you know, they were in charge of a, a rare disease where they started off with like 100 patients, right? Today, that product has 20,000 patients on therapy. And the way they got there was constantly innovating, constantly looking for new ideas, looking for new ways of engaging patients and providers. And and we've been with them every step of the way. And, you know, real audiences came out of some experiments with them. 
you know, conversational AI, they were one of the first people to deploy conversational AI agents on their brand properties to engage patients and HCPs and providers, right? And so I think when in, in great moments of change and uncertainty like this, you know, what we know from history, Larry, is like certain leaders rush towards it, right? Like they love it. They want like more of it. They want to try it. They want to see what it can do for them. And then there are some leaders who will naturally hang back. You know, they'll sort of stick to what they know well. They let the others in the organization figure out, like, see what works. And then they'll move in, you know, so and, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? But I think if I was a CEO of a client or a, or a, or a chief commercial officer, now is the time for me to thinking, be thinking about who are those leaders in my commercial organization, be it on the sales side or the marketing side or metaphors or whatever they might be, who have that ability to be entrepreneurial, seize the moment, try new things, you know, try and be bold, right? And and I think when you when you can identify some of those people and, and empower them, give them a little bit of extra investment and say, okay, look, go and try some of these new things, right? Um, I think that's when the great things started to happen because it's not, this is not going to happen with, you know, somebody top down saying, look, you know, thou shall adopt, you know, gen AI or, or AI driven commercialization across, right? It is going to be brand by brand because that's how P&Ls are set up, incentives are set up and so on and so forth. So I think the only thing I'll say, you know, putting on my old strategy consulting heart, giving advice to my clients will be to, you know, find those innovators, find those bold experimenters in your organization and and charge them with like going and finding new ways. And by the way, tell them to call Real Chemistry because they know how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> You know, to, to that end, you know, a final question for you both. How quickly, I mean, obviously things have accelerated. You know, if we're having this conversation again at this time next year, um, what are some of the things you expect to be telling me? I mean, certainly real chemistry we know is going to be right in the middle of all of this, but the industry itself, um, you know, will we have found some of those leaders that you just alluded to, the ones that are ready to dive right in? Um, are people going to take success cases before they make the investments and kind of philosophically align, uh, where do you think we're going to be? Here's what I'll say. A year from now, Larry, let's, let's put this down in our diaries. A year from now, we'll do this exact same podcast. And we will have three clients of Real Chemistry who have been down this journey with us and have tried one or all of the five stages of our commercialization lifecycle and are at the vanguard of how AI can sort of revolutionize commercialization, right? That's, that's my hope. That's what, I, that's what I'm excited about is, partnering with our clients and, and having our clients come here and tell the story in their own words, you know, because it's, it's so much more exciting to hear it from a client. Sam, how about your perspective? The biggest change I expect to see is um, commercial leaders, chief commercial officers, understanding the benefit of portfolio management as opposed to project management. And in some of these situations, when you're dealing with AI, making enterprise-wide decisions as opposed to brand by brand decisions, because brand by brand decisions, you're optimizing for project by project success. It's like buying individual stocks. Working across the enterprise saying, hey, look, this capability, right? This use case is important. It should increase ROI. Now, brand by brand, the amount of ROI you get may vary, just like stock by stock, the amount of return you're gonna get will vary. How do I optimize across my entire business, not across each individual brand? So global optimization as opposed to local optimization for each brand. And I think by next year, uh, we'll have some examples of 
you know, for some of the clients we're working with who've done this and hopefully some case studies that indicate that the commercial leaders who are smart enough to manage portfolios and make these enterprise-wise buys um, and set up experiments across all their brands or most of their brands are getting high returns at a lot lower risk. You said, uh, put it in the diary for a year from today. Uh, you don't think I'm going to do that, but I am. So <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to the remaining parts of this series and to the uh, the year later uh, update. So thank you guys so much for your time here. This was wonderful. This is fun, Larry. Thank you. Great to be here, Larry. For the MM&M Podcast, this is Larry Dobrow. Many thanks for listening and be well.